0: All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your speculative fiction book club podcast without a face by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester, originally published serially in 1952 in issues of the magazine Galaxy. It was then published as a book in 1953, it also won the Hugo that year, and in fact what it won was the very first Hugo Award. This episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome and also really generous Patreon supporters, which is why it is showing up in the middle of the month as an unexpected bonus episode, and I'm very grateful for that. Commissions are a huge part of our business, they're how we stay on the air, it's very helpful, we're so grateful for it. And if you would like to commission an episode of your own for this show or for any of the shows on the network, you can do that by contacting us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can message us on any of our social media accounts. Uh, Also, you can message us through Patreon, and Patreon supporters get a discount on commissions as well. All right. So this is a book that I have read before. I read The Demolished Man for the first time in the 1990s when I was in the army. Uh, This is also when I was giving myself a wholly unguided crash course on science fiction. Mostly, I would use my local library for that. I would call them up with a list of books I wanted to read, and about a week later, I'd go pick them all up. But The Demolished Man is a book that I purchased from the Tattered Cover Bookshop. Uh, this was the, the vintage edition that was published in 1996, so it was still fairly fresh in 1998. And um, I don't know why, but it was prominently displayed in the, uh, the SF section on this particular visit. I had not ever heard of Alfred Bester before, and what drew me to look at the book was simply, and, and I'm sure you have guessed this, uh, it was simply that I recognized the name from Babylon 5. And I love this book. Of course, I went back for more. I picked up The Stars, My Destination, and then also a collection of his short stories. And they've all been sitting on my shelf in a dozen or so homes since then. It was really great to dust this off and, and open it up again. And by the way, if, if that is your story as well, if you got to Bester by way of Babylon 5, or you know, even if you're just into Babylon 5, maybe you already knew about Bester, but you like Babylon 5, We have covered two episodes of that show on the network. We did Passing Through Gethsemane, which uh, actually takes a cue from this story. We did that episode on Lower Decks, our our Star Trek podcast. And then Brent and I covered the episode that Neil Gaiman wrote on our Neil Gaiman podcast, which is called Hanging Out with the Dream King. uh, The episode that Gaiman wrote is a a fifth season episode called Day of the Dead. But all right, that is uh, enough preamble. So let's get into it. Let's go talk about The Demolished Man. The Demolished Man is set on Earth, but it is the future. It's the the 24th century, very much like Star Trek The Next Generation, but it is a very different place than the United Federation of Planets, mostly in that it is not a very different place than the world Bester was living in himself. The story takes place almost entirely in New York City, though the solar system has been colonized. People live on Mars, they live on Venus, they live on the moons of Jupiter— even still, though, we don't visit those places, and New York City is also entirely recognizable to us. The major difference is that telepaths are a thing, and this is something that Bester is very much known for, right? This is why the leader of the Psycorps in Babylon 5 is named Al-Bester There is no Psychor in the Demolished Man, but there is a guild of telepaths. And there aren't actually that many telepaths, by the way. They number in really just the tens of thousands out of the entire human population. They also have three different levels of aptitude and skill, and level one telepaths, that's the, the highest level, level one telepaths are quite rare. All but one of the telepaths that we meet, this story is actually making a living as a telepath and and they're highly paid for that. We see them doing a variety of different jobs, like working in the HR department of a big corporation uh, because, hey, you know, this is uh, helpful with job interviews, for example, but they're doing all sorts of work. But much of the money that they earn goes, in fact, to the guild where it is then used to find other telepaths and then train those people. The Guild also has a policy that telepaths are required to marry other telepaths. There's a, a big heteronormative assumption here, of course, because what they really mean is not marry, they, they mean reproduce with, right? The Guild is explicitly running a eugenics program in order to make more telepaths and also stronger telepaths. And, and by the way, just to be clear, eugenics is the word used in the book, and that's real interesting in the 1950s. So with all of that in mind, if you have not read this book before, you might expect that I'm about to tell you uh, about the adventures of a telepath. But I'm not. We will return to telepaths, but the main character of this story is not one. It's not a telepath, and the story is actually about murder. It's about how you can get away with murder in a world where people can read your mind. Our main character is Ben Reich, and he is the head of a massive corporation called Monarch. Monarch does a bit of everything. We're going to talk more about this in the themes and motifs segment. And Reich is one of the wealthiest and also one of the most powerful people in the solar system. But not the most, and his position is not secure. In fact, he's been losing ground to his competitor from Mars, the DeCourtney cartel. And he wants to do something about it. Now there is a, a secret means by which people like Reich and De Courtney can communicate with each other via a telephone messaging system. Uh, there's no internet here, there's not really any important technological change from the early 1950s. And so Reich uses this coded message system to ask De Courtney for a merger as equal partners. And Bester gives us the code key here. Then he gives us the conversation in code so that the act of reading this actually requires us to flip back a page to the key in order to follow the conversation. And this is something I'm going to talk more about in the next segment as well. But what matters right now is that DeCourtney gives the code for yes. He agrees to the merger. But Reich acts as if the overture has been refused. And this is very confusing, of course, right? My first thought is that I've misunderstood the key somehow. But I haven't. The problem is Reich. Reich is psychologically unable to understand that Courtney is not really his rival. And here really is where the story gets going. Reich decides that he has to murder DeCourtney, uh, then also forcibly take over his business. But there hasn't been a murder in 70 years, and there really is no way to get away with it, telepaths can hear you broadcasting murderous intent very loudly, and so you're going to be stopped before you get the chance. And if you aren't stopped, then the police telepaths are they are going to get you. They're going to find you. And everybody knows this, and so it just is not worth trying. But Reich has a plan. And much of the book is about Reich putting this plan in place, then also attempting to put out fires after the fact when something goes wrong during the murder. I'm not going to get into every beat of this, but let me give a few examples. So first, Reich even has to figure out how to get in a room with DeCourtney. And it turns out that DeCourtney is going to be in New York for a night to attend a high society party. But it's a small party. And so Reich has to get himself invited to that. So that is step one. Step two is that he needs a telepath to block out his own mental broadcasting. And this is really interesting. So just a little aside here on how he manages this. As I mentioned, the Guild of Telepaths has dues, and these are on a sliding scale. So if you're making $2 million a year, the Guild is going to take 90% of that as dues. And some of the highly skilled and, and therefore also highly paid telepaths think that's more than a bit steep. And some of these also think that trying to fill the world up with telepaths is not actually a good idea, and that telepaths should be doing more to keep themselves unique, uh, and also doing more to gain power over normals. And if you're thinking, hey, that sounds a lot like the X-Men, you are exactly right. But anyway, Reich finds someone who fits this bill. He hires this person with the promise to help him take over the, the guild and make these changes. Now, Reich also has to do his part not to broadcast his murder, and so he gets an earworm of a commercial jingle in his mind that he just cannot shut off. And, you know, we've all been here with a song, right? And uh, after this, then, Reich also has to do some other scheming to get himself the perfect weapon and also to manipulate the party so that he'll be able to kill DeCourtney without anyone knowing it was him. All of this, all of the this setup, all of this is a ton of fun if you are into uh, the sort of uh, perfect murder uh, type of mystery stories. And, and I very definitely am. So I love this. And Reich does kill Courtney, does that according to the plan. But there was an unknown element. Reich did not know that Courtney was traveling with his daughter. And of course, this daughter witnesses the murder and then runs out of the house. The police are called, and here is where we meet Reich's real antagonist. This is Lincoln Powell, who is a top-tier telepath, and and he's the the policeman running the homicide investigation, the detective running this thing. Now, Powell knows immediately that Reich is the killer, but his type of uh, evidence—that is to say, reading Reich's mind— Uh, This is not admissible in court. And so from his perspective, the story that he's in, what he's doing is really just a matter of uh, getting the non-telepathic evidence that will convict Reich. And that is really what most of the the book is about. It's, It's Reich and Powell in conflict with one another. Both of them are looking for the DeCourtney daughter, and Powell is also trying to find the weapon and so on, Well, Reich is trying to prevent Powell from doing any of that. And this is all very clever. It's all very tensely written. It's uh, It's a lot of fun. It's. I mean, it's a real cat and mouse game. But in the end, Powell just cannot get enough evidence to prove the case against Reich, and so no charges are going to be brought against him. Reich is in the clear. Except not Really? because there is a lot more going on with Reich, and, and, and this goes back to his psychological inability to see to Courtney's acceptance for what it actually was, to see it as an actual acceptance. Reich also has been having a chronic nightmare about a man without a face who is uh, tormenting him. Uh, also, Reich thinks murder's a good solution to a problem that is not actually a problem, so clearly he's not well. But his psychopathy is so intense that his mind is actually altering his perception of reality. And Reich starts trying to kill himself by leaving bombs in places where he's going to be later, uh, and then forgetting that he's done that, and so he actually thinks that someone else is trying to kill him. And ultimately, Powell comes to see Reich as an existential threat to society, and so he convinces the Guild to authorize him to take Reich out— And I use that euphemism, take him out there, because the plan is not to kill Reich. The plan is to wipe his mind in a telepathic struggle. And this type of thing has been done before, but it has always led to the death of the telepath doing the wipe. But Powell is totally willing to take that risk, totally willing to make that sacrifice, because he thinks that the danger to just reality itself is in fact so high. And Powell does this, and of course he succeeds and lives... And then Reich's story ends with his identity destroyed, but the building blocks of his personality intact, and he's recovering. He's recovering at a special facility where he's going to be rebuilt as a better person. It is very tempting, uh, as we move into our themes and motifs segment, by the way, it is very tempting to focus on mind wipes and telepaths and to point out how significant this book is in the development of speculative fiction, especially in the 1960s. But what really struck me about the story as I read it this time, in decades after I read it for the first time, what really struck me this time is Reich's role as a business tycoon. And so I want to situate this story really in the context of American business history. First, let's note some features of monarch utilities and resources. Foremost, I want to emphasize that although this is a massive business, it is not a corporation. We have a tendency these days in America to use the word corporation just to mean really big business. But in fact, that word refers to a certain ownership structure of a business where multiple people can enter into a form of partnership and thereby create a business entity that has a legal standing as a person. Some corporations are partnerships of a you know, small group of wealthy investors. But these days, most corporations, or at least you know the big businesses who fill our homes up with products and uh, run our lives as we quietly slip into the cyberpunk dystopia, uh, these days, those corporations are stock corporations, meaning that small shares of the company ownership have been sold to investors and that those shares can be sold to other people in what is called a stock market. That is usually what we mean in America by corporation, though that does, I will say, simplify what a corporation is, and it is also not how the word is generally used in other parts of the Anglophone world. But at any rate, all of that is really just to emphasize that Monarch Utilities and Resources is not a corporation. It is privately owned by Ben Reich, who inherited it from his father, and he from his, and possibly he from of old, I suppose. So Reich is not beholden to shareholders. He is not beholden to a board of directors or anything like that. Monarch is his, and he can make any choice that he wants, and he can fire and hire at will. And it is kind of right there in the name, I guess, right? Ben Reich is the king of this massive enterprise, right? It's called Monarch. He's Reich, which is a German word that uh, means, you know, empire or, or kingdom, regnum, we might say. Realm, I guess, is the word I was actually looking for there. And it is a massive enterprise in our world, uh, the real world of the the early twenty first century. A privately owned business would not be this big, and it would not sprawl the way that Monarch does. A privately owned business would be something focused on a single product, or you know maybe a focused line of products, and likely not a finished consumer good, but rather a product that goes into other products, like uh, you know, ball bearings or something like that. And it actually is totally possible that Monarch is not making any consumer products at all, actually. We don't see anything like that in the book. And although Ben Reich is famous as a tycoon and just kind of, you know, I don't know, general rich person, Monarch itself does not seem to be in people's lives. The only business activity that we really see Monarch engaged in is in the research and development division. But at the same time, the the day-to-day operations of the business just aren't important to the murder story, and so we don't see them. And it's also you know, it's not at all as if Reich is having a normal day during this story. And Reich does have a relationship with someone who writes jingles, right catchy advertisements for products, which suggests that hey, maybe Monarch is selling goods directly to consumers because otherwise what would he need jingles for? But in either case, Monarch remains uh, one of the biggest businesses on Earth, and it's also one of the biggest businesses in the whole solar system. And it seems to operate in a market environment in which there really are only a handful of very large businesses, and they're all in competition with one another. And and these also may be privately owned, though that is far from clear here in the, the world building that Bester does. But all of this is really evocative of a period of American business history just a few generations removed from the context in which Bester wrote this book. Though I will say that I think that his immediate context matters a lot and we're, we're, we're gonna get there. But the tycoons in The Demolished Man, they just reek of robber barons, which is the term used for 19th century industrialists who used a lot of uh, shady business practices, but also who had the power to operate around and also just totally outside of uh, the public good without any real fear of interference. Uh, There are a ton of famous names among them. Famous names include Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Mellon. uh, These are names that are still with us because their fortunes are still with us uh, and still an important force in our world. But even still, these tycoons of the late 19th century, the the robber barons, they tended to focus on a single industry. Even if they then also owned and operated businesses in adjacent industries, that was something they were doing to uh, really try to create vertical monopolies, which is to say they were trying to get control not just of the production, but also the components that go into production, also then the means of distributing whatever their, their product was. But Monarch and, and also all these other businesses here in Bester's imaginary future, these businesses all seem to sprawl not vertically, but horizontally with their hands really in just about every industry and market. And this type of of business sprawl here, this is really a phenomenon of the early 20th century when many businesses began to diversify their interests and whole divisions of a company, uh, whole divisions that maybe could employ literally tens of thousands of employees, uh, command hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. uh, But these divisions could act independently of one another in completely different industries, but yet still all be beholden to a single superstructure. And consumers themselves even could be totally ignorant of these relationships, right? Like you might not know that, hey, the cereal that you're eating for breakfast and also the car you're about to go drive to work and then the TV show that you're going to watch at night when you come home, those are all produced by the same company, different divisions of the same company. And so, you know, they've maybe got different names on them, but still all controlled by the same entity. And the name Monarch Utilities and Resources, I think, Suggest exactly this, right? I mean, it's it's called utilities and resources because it is in the business of producing a bit of everything. If it's something you use or, or, or something that goes into something you use, then Monarch is into it. All right, I uh, I just wandered away from my notes a little bit, so let uh, let's check in. Let's rein myself in, and uh, I guess check in with how we are characterizing Monarch. So one, it's a sprawling firm. It's got many divisions devoted to different industries. It is also privately owned by one person and and has been owned by that same family for generations. And this is really where I want to go next. I want to talk about the longevity of Monarch. When the Demolished Man opens, Monarch is really an, an institution. It is an important entity. It's a powerful entity in human society, and it has been around for longer than any living person has. And these characteristics, right, institution, long-lived institution, this defined the business environment of Bester's own day of the the 1950s, the world immediately following the Second World War. Most companies that survived the Great Depression had gone on to do really well during the the war. Uh, Great Depression of the 30s, I guess we should say, World War II, the early 40s. And these companies now in the early 1950s and in the late 1940s were operating in an environment in which the United States was now the only unscathed industrial economy in the world. So prosperity was super high, and the names of businesses were familiar. Some from earlier in the century, like the automobile companies, but others still actually from the 19th century, like uh, the finance sector or uh, DuPont or General Electric. This was also the world of marketing, Business became a part of the lives of consumers and had jingles on the the radio and had advertisements in magazines and on billboards. Products were labeled and branded, and companies cultivated loyalty from customers. And obviously we are still living in this world and it's actually really hard for us to even imagine a world without all of this. Uh, Though I will say I yearn to live in a world without billboards and I often daydream of uh, running for president on a a platform of just banning all advertising anywhere. Uh, But at any rate, this world, Bester's own world of the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, this was also a world in which businesses were so big that they were operated by a class of professional managers. For so many of these really big businesses, it was just no longer possible for the highest echelon of one of these businesses, maybe a firm, I should say, to fully understand all the operations of that firm, Uh, you know, especially these sprawling companies with multiple divisions. Firms cultivated loyalty, not just among consumers, but among their managers as well. And In the post-war world, there was a real expectation that white-collar workers would spend their entire lives with a single firm rising through the ranks. This is, of course, not at all how we live today. And in fact, I remember this being a real source of anxiety for my family in the the early and and mid-1990s when these expectations, expectations my parents had grown up with, were really changing. And this would have been about midway through my father's career— But at any rate, when when Bester wrote this book, this was actually kind of a new phenomenon. And it was much observed at the time. There's actually an important book from a few years after The Demolished Man called The Organization Man. This was uh, written by a professional sociologist named William White. And this book documented this phenomenon and and showed its uh, tendrils, I guess, in areas outside of business as well, tracing a direct pipeline linking university campuses to corporate recruiting offices, and then also to suburban bedroom communities. And I want to note as well, though White does not actually make all that much of this, but I think it's important to note that the people entering the pipeline in 1948 or or 1951 or 1956, most of these people were veterans, either of the Second World War or the Korean War. And these people were at universities where they could be recruited because they were making use of the GI Bill. And then also the suburban neighborhoods that they're living in, these bedroom communities, are being constructed or expanded because of the mortgage benefits that are also owed to veterans. And of course, right, home construction, real estate, higher education, these are massive sectors of the economy that we built after the Depression and after the Second World War, in large part because of the GI Bill that benefited literally every sector of the economy. But all right, J Bill stuff, that's a digression. The point is that when Bester was writing The Demolished Man, these massive firms had become institutions, institutions in American life. Uh, consumers and employees alike felt a kind of you know, loyalty to them. Loyalty, maybe, you know, it's a word I've used a few times already. It might be a little strong, but familiarity, right? There was a comfort sort of knowing that these producers and and sellers were going to be around for a long time. They already have been and they're going to continue to be. And that is very much in the background of the future world that Bester imagines here. It's a world in which membership in a firm is not just a livelihood, really it's an identity. We see this in the novel for sure, right? We see this with Monarch, but we also see it in the Telepaths Guild as well. And there's a growing sense in Bester's own world, right, the world he's living in, America, circa 1950, not his imaginary world, right, in Bester's own world, that these types of institutions are coming to matter more for our identity, also for our sense of society and community, than our state institutions or our religious institutions, And really, right, in short, this is a glimpse of the social change that is going to manifest in a massive way in cyberpunk literature just two generations later, uh, really written by the first generation of people who were born into this worldview, in fact. All right, so that is some American business history and how it is represented here in Bester's imaginary 24th century. But I also want to talk about business and psychopathy. Uh, psychopathy, which is to say, hey, being a psychopath, this is a pretty loose term. Definitions fluctuate over time. But roughly speaking, I think we can define this as uh, a lack of empathy, antisocial behavior, and egotism, sort of all three of those things. I definitely do not want to try to diagnose Reich, though I will say that is an activity that we have engaged in on the network before as Valerie Hoagland works in mental health care. And so we've done this on our Star Trek podcast with Star Trek characters. Uh, She's also guested with me on Elder Sign, where we did this uh, with some characters from Weird Fiction. It's a lot of fun to do, but I don't want to diagnose Reich. What I want to do is simply take it as a given that he is lacking in empathy, uh, that he thinks only of himself and also has no regard for society or its rules. Uh, Because, hey, those are his character traits, right? That's literally who he is. What I do want to talk about is the relationship between business executives and psychopathy or uh, psychopathic traits, maybe I should say. And this is something that has actually received a lot of attention in the last decade or so, but I don't think that it is something that Bester would have consciously thought about. And so uh, to me, it's really interesting to see it depicted here. So first, let's set a base understanding of how many people express psychopathic personality disorders. Uh, In the general population, it's about 1%, one out of every hundred Uh, general population, I guess, really also meaning just like Americans and Europeans, but hey, that's a gripe we can leave behind. So yeah, 1%. But in prisons, this is about 15%. And so there is some kind of correlation with psychopathy and criminal behavior, Uh, disregard for rules, also disregard for harming others. Uh, These are key elements of psychopathy. So, you know, this is maybe not something that's surprising to us. But a number of recent studies in the last 10 or 15 years have found that the rate of psychopathy among corporate executives is almost as high as it is in prisons. It's around 10%, uh, though there's some disagreement that maybe that's actually either a little high or a little low. In these environments, business environments, psychopaths tend to be charming chameleons. Uh, they present different personalities to different types of people. Uh, you know, you can, you can envision that sort of going up and down, but there's more nuance to it than that, of course. But in any case, they're always focused on how they can use others in order to further their own ambitions. And, well, that's definitely something we see Reich do throughout this story. He's charming this or that person, bullying someone else, Lying as it suits him, and even carefully constructing a false narrative of his preparations for murder. The way that Bester writes this, right, for him, his sort of psychological worldview here, it's all Freudian. It's all rooted in a Freudian understanding of psychology. This is just like not something you could escape in the 1950s. And so Reich's personality disorder exists in the story because he subconsciously suspects that his dad is not actually his biological father and that subconsciously he knows who his real biological father is and wants to kill him for it. And I'm not actually even sure I mentioned that in the recap segment, but hey, that's Courtney. Turns out DeCourtney's his real biological father. But I don't actually find that all that interesting. And I think that Bester has unintentionally given us a glimpse of a very real type of person who's become all too familiar to us in the real world uh, also you know all too familiar to us in fiction i suppose as well i mean right because this is it's the exact plot of american psycho also wall street but the reason that sociologists and psychologists have even been looking at personality disorders prevalent among business leaders is because those leaders caused the massive crisis that reshaped our entire world in 2008. And look, given the enormous power of these businesses, the mental health, the, the personality traits of who is running them, this has become really important, uh, even for people who don't feel directly connected to them. And I've learned this the hard way. I'll say, having lost my job during the pandemic, I've, I've learned the hard way that Upending the economy has ripple effects on people even far removed from the locus of power or even just the locus of the crisis itself. But hey, psychopaths, they don't care about that, right? What they care about is themselves. And Ben Reich is a great example of exactly this type of person. He cannot stand that he's being outcompeted. Winning is what matters the most to him, even though he doesn't actually need anything that he's going to gain by winning. He could even just completely retire from running monarch and go live a life pursuing you know, whatever hobby he's interested in. Except that's the whole thing about Reich. His hobby is winning. That, that's all he has. That's all he has in his life. Even the murder quickly becomes about winning. It's not really about murdering to Courtney. It's about acquiring his business and becoming the richest person in the solar system so that he can say he's the richest person in the solar system. Because... There already is not anything that he can't buy if he wants to. He does not have any need for more wealth than he already has. And then after the murder, it simply becomes about beating the detective. For him, it really becomes about proving that he is smarter and craftier. And in the end, Bester shows us exactly what a destructive force someone like this is, especially when he has the resources to execute his plans, uh, to, to execute his plans without any regard for other people. But Bester also admires Reich. And that is very clear. The problem with Reich is not so much that he's a chameleon or a liar or competitive. It's that he uses those traits to a bad end. And the book concludes with the introduction of mind wiping as a form of rehabilitation. And and, and here's what Bester writes. We need men like Reich. If a man's got the talent and guts to buck society, he's obviously above average. You want to hold on to him you straighten him out and turn him into a plus value. Why throw him away? So taking a step back from that, we can see that for Bester, it's not really the personality traits that are the problem. It's the cultural values. And I have to say that I agree, at least in broad strokes. Ambition and competitiveness aren't inherently bad. They aren't inherently antisocial. It's the objects of ambition and the objects of competitiveness that can become bad or antisocial. So when it's a competition over possession or a competition over accumulation, then that's really just promoting robbery, right? Literally the robber in robber baron. But if the competition is about service, then that's a plus value, to use Bester's phrase. The idea behind the, the mind wipes and the rehabilitation here, then, is to give people adulation and the, the sense of winning about something that is actually selfless rather than something that is selfish. Uh, give them this sense of, of winning to fulfill their, their, their need for competition and, and victory with something that gives to society rather than takes from it. And here's where we can actually circle back to the American business history that I've already spent a lot of time on, because Bester wrote The Demolished Man at a time when these firms had become big institutions and powerful institutions. But even with this bigness and and, and their power, they were highly conservative, even, even while being innovative industrially and technologically, but they were risk averse. And indeed, a lot of that industrial and technological innovation was really made in situations that were risk-free or nearly risk-free because they had some kind of government backing or support. But yeah, these firms were risk-averse, and they actually took their role in society fairly seriously. They intended to be around for another 50 years or maybe even another 100 years, and they intended to take care of their workforce and to really be a presence in the lives of Americans. Now, that is a bit simplistic. It is also a bit rosy. But I want to emphasize the manner in which the business landscape of the late 1940s and the early 1950s, the whole 1950s, I should say, is in stark contrast with the period of the robber barons, where innovative industrialists were looking to get rich and also stay rich, often in vigorous competition with one another. They took massive risks. They also preyed on their workforce. They often used violence against their own workers. They would purchase legislation that helped them abuse workers, you know, by bribing legislators. And they also just trashed the environment, uh, knowing that they were doing that, knowing that they were doing long-standing and potentially permanent harm. And these industrialists, they were famous names then, they're, they're famous names now. They were really larger-than-life characters. They were men of ambition. Uh, talent, and guts, actually, I guess is what Bester calls it, right? And there was a lot to admire about them, but they were also clearly psychopaths. And their exploitive practices prompted the creation of progressive politics uh, in order to protect workers and protect the environment. And this really all ushered in a a wave of antitrust legislation that broke up some of these companies, broke up monopolies and, and so on. And then when the depression happened, the New Deal really finished this work and created the environment of the 1950s and 1960s that promoted a culture in which businesses saw themselves as stewards working in partnership with state and society. This period, the sort of immediately post-war period up through the 1960s or you know, up, I guess, until the 1970s, I should say, this is an era when CEOs were not famous outside of the business world. They weren't household names the way the robber bears had been. These were company men doing a job. I mean, they were being extremely well compensated for it, but they were just doing a job with the expectation that eventually someone else would succeed them, and their job was really to make sure that the institution was intact. But then in the 1970s, neoliberalism happened. And in America, this is often, maybe not often, but at least sometimes called neoconservatism. The New Deal and other Progressive Era regulations began to be undone. Uh, This is work that was largely completed in the 1990s when the financial industry was almost completely deregulated. And what we've done is usher in a new era of robber barons. Uh, They're a little friendlier now than they were in the 19th century. I mean, right? Jack Dorsey has a cool beard. Elon Musk smokes weed on podcasts. But these guys are robber barons nonetheless. And now to bring this back again to Ben Reich and to Alfred Bester's imaginary world, I think there is something really interesting, something really important, actually, to Bester's imaginary world that his psychopathic CEO murders a few people rather than invents a new type of predatory mortgage lending or some kind of addictive software that harvests your data for profit. What I'm getting at here is that Bester can't even conceive of a return to an age of robber barons because... Obviously, the march of historical progress means we are past that stage. And to me, that's actually, I think, the most interesting element of the demolished man as a historical artifact of the early 1950s. All right. That all went on for much longer than I intended. That was a lot more on uh, business history and psychopathy than I thought my outline would take. I also have here on my outline uh, a section about Nietzsche and slave morality versus master morality. This was largely going to draw on this closing bit about Reich's talent and guts but I'm going to skip that for time. Uh, We can always talk about it on the forum. It could be very interesting, but there is one thing here that I don't want to skip, uh, even though I am running long. Uh, I'll try to be brief about it, but what I don't want to skip is the way that Bester plays with text as a visual medium, uh, the way that he plays with the act of reading words on a page. For example, there are instances when two or more telepaths are communicating with each other telepathically. And in these cases, Bester places the two halves of the conversation side by side in different columns rather than narrate it to us. And the idea here is to show us that telepathic communication differs from verbal communication and that it really shouldn't be narrated according to conventions with dialogue tags and that sort of thing. Now, to be clear, I do not want to read an entire book like that, but I appreciate that Bester is thinking about telepaths as something more than just people with a superpower, right? That he wants to show us that telepathic communication would be a very different experience entirely. And this sort of textual play is not limited to the telepaths either. Bester also gives us people's names in really interesting, really playful ways. Uh, For example, he spells the name Atkins with the at symbol standing in for the letters A and T. He also uses an ampersand to tell us that there is an and, an and D in uh, some person's name. But Bester also plays with his book as a visual medium, even right at the beginning, where he gives us a code key, then gives us a conversation entirely in the code. And the whole plot of the book hinges on the reader recognizing that Reich has actually misread the code. This fact does not come up again for well over a hundred pages. And so I actually wonder how many readers have glossed over that key or simply not flipped back a page to check and therefore actually spent the first two acts of this book thinking that DeCourtney had actually refused the merger offer and that that's why Reich killed him and then entirely missing the part about Reich's break with reality. And I don't really think that would be a reader's fault, right? I mean, I think this is a really bold move on Bester's part. I thought it was very cool. I really appreciated it. (laughs) Okay, but all right. That was a very long themes and motifs segment. Uh, I don't have a lot to say, though, in the next segment, the strengths and weaknesses segment, which we'll just move into right now. Uh, The Demolished Man, it's an awesome book. It totally deserved to win the first Hugo, and it really is required reading for anyone interested in the development of speculative fiction. I mean, just thinking about where this book is so influential, the entirety of the X-Men is embedded right here in this book. Also, important elements of Star Trek and Babylon 5. And it is also, I think, a super fascinating artifact of the 1950s, and I I hope I've convinced you of that as well. It's also just a a joy to read. Bester's prose is crisp and fast, and the story moves— it's also a very short book. They all were in the 1950s. You really could just read it in a day or two if you've got a lifestyle that lets you read a lot, you know, a week if you don't. So I think it's well worth checking out if you haven't already. And so on that note, I'm going to bring this review to a close. But I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or come by the Clay Temple Media sub in and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on but, as I say often, especially on what I left out, and in this case, I skipped an entire section. As I said, I wanted to talk about masters and slaves and Nietzsche. These things are all over this book. The fact that the principal character, the murderer, has a German name, that the word eugenics appears in here. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. So I would love to have that conversation with you. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GLMcDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Let me once again thank the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. I really enjoyed this book. I'm so grateful to have had the means and uh, motive, I guess, to revisit it again, Uh, and especially to have noticed things about Bester's world, both his real world and his imaginary world, that I just could not have noticed when I read this for the first time at age 20. This was really a great experience for me, and I'm so grateful for it. So all right, I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on another science fiction novel from the 1950s. This one is The Languages of Pow by Jack Vance. But until then, I hope you will remember, even if Ben Reich does not, I think he maybe actually never knew it, but I hope you will remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.